WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're li- listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts! <laughs> From WNYC. See? Yes. And NPR. Three, two, one. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radio Lab. The podcast. And uh, today on the podcast, um, well, first, we've got a story from our uh, old producer of ours, Lulu Miller. She's not old. She's just has been with us and now is at uh, <laughs> school. Right. Exactly. She's well, actually yes. kind of young. Chronologically, she's not yeah. old. Um, she's old to us. Yeah. She's an old soul. Uh, <laughs> in any case, this is a story about some of the sticky issues that result when you try and empathize with another being. Yeah. It's a very different story than one we've ever told. Uh, it started for Lulu when she spoke with them. Um, well, she'll handle the introductions. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, award-winning author, <laughs> fantastic husband. Uh, Dad of the year. Dad of the year. No, I'm Jeff Lockwood. I'm a uh, professor at the University of Wyoming. I Jeff is an entomologist. You mean like a bug guy? He's a bug guy, and mostly he studies crickets and grasshoppers. And this story involves a kind of cricket that's, well... Different. The gorillas. <laughs> yeah, the gorilla critters, yeah. And are they related to Katie Dids? The way to think of a gorilla critter is like a, a cricket on steroids. Okay. It's, it's sort of like the Hulk Hogan of crickets. First of all, he says they're a little bulkier than your average cricket. And they tend to have very strong jaws. Very strong jaws. And mandibles that are really sharp. Sort of like a serrated knife. And most of all, they're vicious. They all had to be caged separately. If you put them together, they would they would fight. To the death? Yeah. Wow. And so when I would go in in the mornings... And reach into one of their cages, as soon as they saw him coming, they'd fly into this... Rage. It's really sort of a showstopper. They'll sort of rear up on their hind leg. Beat their abdomens on the ground. Flare out their wings. And then clamp onto his fingers. They would draw blood. Whoa. Wow. So I used this, uh, this glass probe on, on, on the big boy, uh, at least until the point at which he snapped off the end of the glass rod. Holy moly. So I, I ended up with, with the, actually there are two that were very large. Um, I would just take their cage when I, when I went in and, and pop it in the refrigerator and go get a cup of coffee. And within 15 minutes, because insects are cold-blooded, they would be anesthetized by the cold and I could lift them out. That's cheating. <laughs> well, that was my solution for them. The little guys, I, I could manage. The big ones, um, a little bit of chill in the morning is all it took. So the point is, these creatures were completely alien to him. There's, like, nothing about them he can relate to. But over time, the more he studied them, 
the more he started noticing things that made them seem way less foreign. See, I kept these in, in these, in these For example, as soon as he'd put one into a new cage, it would make itself a little nest. And once it has that little nest built, that's home. In a very real way, because by moving them around to different cages, he soon realized that they could differentiate their, their nests. They can actually tell the difference between their nest and another. And how do they do that? They secrete a pheromone, a chemical. And each cricket is able to self-identify its own odor. Whoa. It gave me the sense, and I think there's something to this, that they had a kind of capacity to recognize self. Oh, interesting. Um, We don't see that much in insects, but they had uh, what appears to be a capacity to say, this is mine. And then he began to think differently about that crazy rage, too. Because if you think about it, here's this creature completely vulnerable to attack. They really don't have a very good defense for themselves. They don't excrete nasty chemicals. They don't sting. They can't fly, so it's not going to go flying away either. So maybe that rage is their only strategy. Which, again, drew me into thinking that I understood them. Perhaps these little guys were... More like me than, than many other insects that I'd worked with. So he grew to really like them. But then, one day... I'd been working with this particular gorilla critted. Trying to move him from one cage to another. And he was agitated and had decided to go on the offensive, which involved trying to come out of the cage. So he was scrambling up the side of the cage. And to keep him from getting out, Jeff slammed the lid down. As he was just at the edge. And caught him between the lid and the edge of the cage. And I, you know, quickly lifted the lid up and he fell back into the cage. And I looked down at him. And uh, what had happened was I had ruptured his abdomen. A split right down his belly. Jeez. And some of the, um, the viscera um, and, and the kind of globule of, of yellow fat was leaking out, um, oozing out of his body. I, I felt guilt, and then, of course, I, I felt sorry for an animal. What really struck me was what he did next, which was curl his head downward uh, toward his abdomen, pause for a moment, uh, and then began consuming his own innards. Consuming the viscera that, that, had, that was oozing out of his body. Um, and so he was, he was literally cannibalizing himself. Wow, that is disgusting. It was horrifying. Um, I had sort of felt like I, come to, I had come to know them. Yeah. And then this, this was just so out of the imaginable. But the instant that word popped into his mind, unimaginable, he had this sort of Pavlovian reflex. And he thought of this guy, an old professor of his. Dr. Lafage. Lafage. He was one of my mentors at uh, Louisiana State University. You said this was a teacher of his? Yep, insect behavior. He was one of the younger faculty members uh, when I was there, mid-30s. Slight of build, but incredibly intense. He's kind of an expert in animal violence. And the thing he harped on over and over, the thing he was trying to pound into their brains was... Objectivity to separate one's emotions and interests from the object of study. And uh, he had these wire rim glasses, and I, and I remember if, uh, 
if uh, if he would ask you a question. Like, why does the gorilla critter do its crazy war dance? And you tried sort of reading in will, intention, mental states. Maybe because it's angry or scared? He would just drop his chin and look over the top. And tear you apart. His job in the classroom was to make us good, objective observers. And Jeff... Jeff stayed in touch with him over the years. I wanted to be good at this. As he set up his own lab. You know, I, I, I had a, a stake in, in, in earning his respect. And so that day, as he's watching the gorilla critted consume its own guts, he's thinking, okay, what would Lafage see in this? So my, my sense through my research is that what this gorilla critted had done was perhaps to have detected the odor of its own fats. It sort of drew the conclusion that this must be something good to eat without sort of grasping that it was its its own self. The smell of its own fat triggered a feeding behavior that, that's highly adaptive. Um, you know, to feed on fat. Fats are very hard to get hold of out in the world. And so right. when you smell fats, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's like us and donuts, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, go for it, it. It triggers feeding, yeah. It triggers feeding. So clearly these things don't quite have a sense of self. Right. So, so maybe they're not just like me. Which was always Lafage's point. Don't put the creature in your box. It doesn't want to be there. It's sort of a moral danger almost to sort of not allow the organism to be what it is. Mm. It's almost to sort of possess it or to own it and to really treat the insects sort of with a, with a, with, with a deep respect, right, is oddly yeah. enough to treat them objectively. You know, he, he was one of the... One of the professors who actually engendered a, a kind of a good fear. And he was the kind of person who you, uh, who you wanted to please. <laughs> Is that better? Um, a little louder? Yeah, maybe louder. a tiny bit. Is that okay? Oh, that's great. Okay. Great. But then, years later, something happened that challenged Jeff's ability to do this to be the kind of scientist that Lafage wanted him to be. We're recording over here. And there's really only one person who can tell us this part of the story. Will you um, introduce yourself? Okay. My name is Tamara Carboni. Tamara is actually not a scientist. She worked for the Louisiana State Museum. And back in 1989, she and Dr. Lafage, whose first name is also Jeff, were working together on this termite problem. The termites were getting really bad in the French Quarter, and it was her job to preserve the historic homes, and Jeff was studying the termites. I never imagined that I would be fascinated by termites, but I was. <laughs> so He made it fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. But then one night in July, July 25th, they met for dinner to talk about how the project was going. And um, we were walking home. Uh, well, he was walking me to my house around 10, 1030 at night. And I think it must have been raining or there was a threat of rain because Jeff was carrying an umbrella. And I could hear footsteps behind us, very determined sounding footsteps. And um, we got to a corner across from my house. And at that point, this person came around us in front of us. And he said, close your eyes and in the process of closing my eyes I saw the gun so she closed her eyes and a second later she felt a tug on her purse I could feel him take hold of the straps and I was not going to resist 
And as I felt him do that, I could hear Jeff say, don't do that. At that instant. I don't remember the shot at all. You know, I, I felt Jeff move. And I guess at that point, I opened my eyes. This guy had already run, never took my purse. I saw Jeff running toward my house. And I just ran after him. I had no idea he was shot. But he got onto the porch and he collapsed on his back. And at that point, he was gushing blood. And I was trying to get Jeff to understand that help was coming. And I kept saying, "Um, you're going to be okay. They're on their way. And did he say anything? He couldn't talk. He just, he had this kind of stare. And I just watched him die. The news came by a phone call. And it just seemed, you know, it was you know, it's kind of one of those, those classic unreal moments. Something about this, you know, must be wrong. It wasn't Dr. Lafarge. He wasn't really killed. It seemed particularly hard to grasp. You know, one minute I'm with this vital person, and the next minute he's dead. Sadness, anguish, confusion. It was hysterical, crying. I was in shock. They never found his killer. Never found out anything about him who he was, why he would do this. It was just this seemingly senseless act. And that's how Jeff understood it for years, that it was senseless. senseless. But over time, something odd started to happen. Lafage started appearing in his brain, telling him that that word wasn't good enough. And he began to ask himself again, how would Dr. Lafage want me to think about this? How would he think about his own death? Okay, so I wonder if if you do have the essay with you. Um, if you so he writes an essay. Will you read the last four paragraphs of, of the essay? I will. One, two, three, four, right. The year after I left Louisiana and came to Wyoming as a freshly minted PhD. The first thing he does is he takes Lafage's attitude on violence. The violence is the baseline strategy for most encounters between and indeed within species. That it's not some evil outlying thing, but instead a baseline strategy for all animals. And in that light, he looks at the actions of that night sort of dispassionately. For most humans, First, he figures this kid was probably mugging them because he was poor. Hopeless, poor, angry. And scared. The woman became tangled in the strap. Dr. Lafage, having his own instinctual reaction, stepped between them. Said, don't hurt her. You, you can have the purse. I can picture him doing this. But perhaps that action itself scared the kid. The young man drew a gun and fired point blank. I showed the essay to Tamara. Yeah, well, no, that's not... I mean, I don't think, and I don't know if he stepped forward or not. You know, again, my eyes were closed. I could feel some kind of movement. I certainly don't think he stepped between, he, there wasn't enough space for him to step between us. For Tamara, um, who's been over the event a million times in her head, and, yeah. doesn't add up so easily. First of all, when Dr. Lafage spoke to the kid, it wasn't exactly a command. It was more like, don't do that. It was like, don't be an idiot. Don't do that. It wasn't really threatening. It was more like, Look, logically, let's not do this. 
And while she gets that the kid might have been scared and had not been intending to shoot. If he never, ever could imagine himself shooting somebody, he wouldn't have had a loaded gun. I can't relate to this person. I can't imagine doing violence to another human being or killing them. Um, I can't relate to that at all. And over the years, her friends and family, coworkers, tried all different kinds of ways to help her make sense of it. Nothing really helped. But there was someone that I worked with, my boss actually, who had been in Vietnam. And he took me aside and he said, you know, you'll never understand this. You're not going to understand it. Yeah. Like, don't even try? I don't think there's any sense to be made out of it. If we just stop there, then it, it's to say that, that it's somehow um, unnatural or inhuman. In fact, in a weird kind of way, it's profoundly human. There's no way I can understand it. Now, in the end, the essay itself kind of falls short, and Jeff admits that. It just isn't sufficient. But he says there is a way of understanding this event. He just hasn't gotten there yet. But it is out there. Yeah. It has to be. And Dr. Lafage would have, I think, said this as well. But for the moment... I think I can say that I, I understand uh, another being's eating its own leaking entrails um, at, a, at a level that I can't understand one of my fellow beings, um, you know, pulling the trigger and, uh, and, and, and killing a man that I love. Thanks to Lulu Miller and to Jeff Lockwood. His original essay first appeared in Orion Magazine. It's called The Nature of Violence. Definitely worth a read. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm of the school that says that you can't really make sense of it. Violence like that? This is just um, a hint of the danger of living in, in a profoundly disordered world, but it looks but I think I'm of the school, though, that you have to try to make sense even if there's no sense to be made. This is Matt Pritchard, a Radio Lab listener in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Cool. I think that's it. Thanks. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org/podcast.